calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Infected is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash infected. Chapter 11. Rumblin', Stumblin', Bumblin'. That was a bullshit call. Perry's booming voice joined the fused protests of the other bar patrons. There's no way that's interference. Come on! While hooting and hollering football fans packed the bar, there was a noticeable space around Perry and Bill's table. The narrow-eyed scowl etched on Perry's face was the same one he had unconsciously worn on the football field. The other patrons cast frequent, Discreet glances his way, keeping an eye on his huge, tense form as if he were some predator that might snap at any moment. The 10-foot projection TV screens of Scorekeeper's Bar and Grill blazed San Francisco's crimson jerseys and gold helmets, along with Green Bay's tradition-rich green and yellow. The slow-motion replay showed a perfect spiral descending towards a Packers receiver, then the 49ers defensive back reaching up and swatting the ball away. Perry screamed at the TV. You see that? He turned to stare in disbelieving anger at Bill, who sat calmly sipping from a Budweiser bottle. Did you see that? I mean, come on! Seemed like a good call to me, Bill said. No bout to doubt it. It was practically rape when you look at it. Perry howled in protest, beer spilling from his mug as his hands moved in accordance with his speech. Oh, you're crazy. The defender has a right to go for the ball. Now the Packers have a first and ten on the friggin' 15-yard line. Do try to keep some of that beer in the mug, will ya? Bill said, taking another sip from his bottle. Perry wiped up the spilled beer with a napkin. Sorry. I just get pissed when the refs decide who's supposed to win and don't just let them play. It is a cruel and unjust existence, my friend, Bill said. We cannot escape the inequities of life, even in the sporting world. Perry set his mug on the table, his eyes focused on the screen, his right hand casually scratching his left forearm. A corner blitz swept around the left offensive end, crushing the Green Bay quarterback for a seven-yard loss. Perry shook his clenched fist at the screen. Take that, baby! Man, I love to see that. I hate quarterbacks. Friggin' Nancy boys. It's good to see someone put a snot bubbler on the QB. Bill looked away and put up a hand as if to say, enough. Perry smiled and drained the rest of his beer in one long pull, then scratched at his thigh. Beer make you break out in hives or something? Bill said. What? Your fleas again. You're on your fifth beer, and with each one you scratch a little more. Oh, that. It's no big deal. 
It's just a bug bite. I'm starting to wonder if we should be sitting in the same booth. I wouldn't want to catch lice. Yeah, you're a regular comedian, Bill. Perry signaled to the waitress. Yeah, Bill, you want another? No thanks, Bill said. I'm driving home after this, and you better slow down, cowboy. You're getting a little excitable. Aw, Bill, I'm fine. Good. We're going to keep it that way. You know how you get if you've had too much to drink. You're done for the night. Annoyance flared at the command, and Perry's eyes narrowed. Who the hell was Bill to tell him what to do? Excuse me, Perry said. Without thinking, he leaned towards Bill, lip curling into a small sneer. Bill's face showed no change. You know when you scowl like that, you look just like your father? Perry flinched as if he'd been slapped. He sat back, then hung his head. He felt his face flush all hot and red with embarrassment. He pushed the beer mug away. I'm sorry. He looked up with pleading eyes. Bill, I'm really sorry. Bill smiled reassuringly. Don't sweat it, buddy. You're under control. It's okay. No, it's not okay. I can't talk to people like that. You especially. Bill leaned forward, his tone soft and supportive. Give yourself a break, Perry. You haven't had an incident in years. Perry stared off into space. I still worry. I might slip up, you know? Not be paying attention. Smack the shit out of someone before I even realize what I'm doing, you know? Something like that. But you haven't smacked anyone. Not for a long time, man. Just relax. Your sob story is bringing tears to my manly eyes. Bill's smile showed his understanding. Perry thanked the powers that be, and not for the first time, that he had a friend in Bill Miller. Without Bill, Perry knew he'd probably be in jail somewhere. Bill put his hand on Perry's arm. Perry, you gotta give yourself some credit. You're nothing like your father. You've left all that behind. You just have to be careful, that's all. Your temper is fucked up, man. Just stay on point. Now can we stop with all this sissy boy simpering and watch some football? The timeout is over. What do you think the pack will do here? Perry looked up at the screen. He let go of the small incident, let go of memories of his father's endless violence. It was always easy to lose himself in football. I bet they'll go off tackle in this one. They'll try to catch the Niners sleeping, but they haven't been able to block the inside linebacker all day. He's creeping up right on a snap. He better watch his ass, or they'll go play action on him, throw behind him when he comes barreling on in. Bill's reassuring touch had started Perry's arm itching again. He dug at it absently as he watched the Packers' running back go off tackle for two yards before the inside linebacker drilled him. Bill took a swig of beer and stared at Perry's arm. You know, I understand that your protruding brow is indicative of a certain caveman mentality, but maybe you should set aside your negative feelings towards the medical profession and see a doctor. Doctors are a ripoff. It's all a big racket. Yes, and I'll bet you saw Elvis last night and there's some great alien hookers at the trailer park down the road. You've got a college degree, for God's sakes, and you still think doctors are medicine men who bleed you with razors and use leeches to suck away the bad spirits. I don't like doctors. Don't like them, and I don't trust them. On the screen, the Packers QB took the snap and faked a handoff. The inside linebacker took a step forward, and as soon as he did, Perry saw the opening in the middle. The quarterback saw it, too. He stood tall in the pocket, the picture of poise, and rifled the ball into the end zone just a few yards behind the linebacker. The receiver hauled it in with a diving catch, giving the Packers a 22-20 lead with only 14 seconds left in the game. Fuck. I fucking hate quarterbacks. Perry felt that gnawing jealousy inside. 
the one that always came when he watched someone blow a play he himself would have easily made. It was so hard to watch the weekly NFL battles, knowing damn well that's where he belonged, knowing damn well he wouldn't have just been competitive, but dominant. He silently cursed the injury that had ended his career. First the Lions, now the Niners. And you still haven't figured out the problem in Pullman, Bill said. It looks like this just isn't your week, pal. Yeah, Perry said as he scratched his forearm. His voice sounded resigned. You can say that again. Chapter 12. Clues. Margaret arched her back and took a deep breath, trying to calm her nerves, the rackle suit encumbering her every movement. Her hand shook, only slightly, but it was enough to disturb her control of the laparoscope. The laparoscope, a surgical tool used for operations in the abdominal cavity, consisted of a sensitive fiber-optic camera and an attachment for various probes, scalpels, drills, and other devices. The camera, complete with its own light, was barely larger than a piece of thread. The rig included a big monitor on a video tower. Surgeons utilized the equipment to perform delicate operations without cutting into the patient via traditional means. Few people used such equipment for autopsies, but Margaret wanted to examine the area surrounding the growth while disturbing it as little as possible. Her strategy seemed to have paid off. Just as in her examination of Charlotte Wilson's corpse, the growths had already rotted into a liquefied black pulp. There was nothing in the growth itself she could examine. The surrounding tissues were decomposing at a frighteningly fast pace, but this time she was ready. Using the laparoscope, she'd probe the area in and around the growth. Deep inside, almost to the bone, and in the midst of the rotting black flesh, she'd found a piece of matter that clearly didn't belong to the victim. She cracked her knuckles one at a time. The bones popped silently muffled by the rackle suit. She drew another breath, then took the camera's controls with her left hand. The monitor showed the growth's blackened, decaying interior. She knew the rot would soon spread to other parts of the body, dissolving it all into a useless pile of putrefaction in a few scant hours. Every second counted. Her hands grew steady. They had to be for such delicate work. The piece of material, barely a quarter inch across, looked to be part of the growth. It was black, the same color as the decomposed gore around it, but reflected the light almost like plastic. That reflective quality was the only reason she'd spotted it. Her left hand maneuvered the camera, pushing it closer to the black piece. Her right hand controlled a trocar, a hollow tube through which specialized surgical instruments could access a patient's body cavities without cutting him or her open. Her trocar carried a tiny pair of pincers. Like a kid with a $100,000 video game, she moved the pincers closer to the black plastic fleck. Her finger rested on a trigger that, when pressed, would close the pincers. Margaret tweaked the camera controls. The image, slightly distorted from high magnification, focused in on the mysterious, shiny fleck. The pincers looked like metallic monster claws about to pluck a lone swimmer from a sea of black. She gently squeezed the trigger. The pincers gripped firmly on the strange material squishing out thick bubbles of rancid goo as they closed. Nice job, Amos said. First try. Give the lady a cigar. She smiled and pulled back on the pincers. The material resisted the pull, 
She looked closely at the monitor, then gently moved the pinchers from side to side, wiggling the clamped object. The reason for the resistance became clear. The object appeared to be embedded in a rib. She pulled back gently, slowly increasing the pressure. The object bent slightly, then popped free. She heard a wet squelch as the tiny pinchers, smeared with black slime, pulled free from the wound. Amos held a petri dish under the pincers. Margaret released the trigger, but the little fleck clung to the goop on the bottom pincher. He grabbed a scalpel, then gently used the point to push the object into the petri dish. She took the dish and held it close to her faceplate. The fleck had a shape to it, and she could see why it had stayed so firmly planted in the bone. It looked just like a black rose thorn. She felt a rush of satisfaction. They were still a hundred miles from figuring out the key to this horrific puzzle, but thanks to Charlotte Wilson, she knew better what to look for and how much time she had to work with. The black fleck was something new, and it brought them one step closer to an answer. Hey, Amos said. What do you make of this? He stood next to Brubaker's hip, one of the places least damaged from the flames. His finger rested beside the small lesion, sort of like a gnarled zit. A gnarled zit with a tiny blue fiber sticking out of it. So he had some acne, Margaret said. Do you think it's significant? I think everything's significant. Should we excise it and send it out? She thought for a moment. No, not yet. It doesn't look like there's any decomposition on that spot, and I want to examine it for myself. Let's focus on the areas that are rotting. As we know, we won't have much longer to work with those. Then we'll come back to it, okay? Sounds good, Amos said. He grabbed the camera from the prep table. He leaned in close to the zit, snapped a picture, then put the camera back on the prep table. Right. We'll come back to it. How much longer until we get results from the tissue analysis of the growth? We'll have the info tomorrow. I'm sure they're working through the night. DNA analysis, protein sequencing, and anything else that might pop up. She checked her watch. 10.07 p.m. She and Amos would also be up all night, and well into the next day. Had to be. They knew from hard-earned experience that they only had a few days before Brubaker's body completely rotted away. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 13, Two for Tuesday. Good God, Perry, Bill said. Two days in a row. I've seen flea-ridden dogs scratch like that, but never a human. Bill, half hung over the cubicle wall, looked down at a madly scratching Perry. Of course, I'm assuming you're human. Scientists still debate that one. Perry ignored the mild jibe, concentrating instead on his left forearm. He'd pushed the sleeve of his ratty Detroit Lions sweatshirt up past his elbow. His right hand looked a blur as he raked the hairy forearm with his fingernails. I hear scabies is nasty this time of year. Damn thing itches like all get out. Perry stopped for a moment to stare at the welt. Its texture resembled a small strawberry, if strawberries were yellow and oozed tiny drops of clear fluid. The yellowish welt felt solid, as if a piece of cartilage had broken free from somewhere in his body and lodged in his arm, his arm, and six other places. The digging nails left long, angry red scratches. The scratches surrounded the welt like egg white around an overcooked yolk. Gee! That looks healthy, Bill said, then slipped back into his cube. It's no big deal. Perry turned his attention to his screen, which displayed a computer network diagram. He absently reached up and brushed a lock of straight, heavy blonde hair out of his eyes. His instant message sound chimed. From Sticky Fingers Whitey. Dude, seriously. Nasty. From Bleed Maze and Blue. It's no big deal. Mind your own. From Sticky Fingers Whitey. God forbid you should just go buy some, oh, dare I speak the word that should never be spoken, medicine? Perry tried to ignore Bill's sarcasm, as if the wonderful rashes weren't enough of a distraction. Perry had been working on the Pullman problem, the same one he hadn't solved the day before, for more than an hour. At least he tried to work. The rashes made it difficult to concentrate on customer support. Quit being such a macho stud boy and go buy some Cordaid. Bill hung over the gray cubicle wall like a puppy trying to decipher a new and unusual sound. You don't have to go to Mr. Evil Witch Doctor, for God's sakes. Just buy something to help with that itch. Disinfectant wouldn't hurt either by the looks of things. I'll never understand why you like to sit in pain rather than partake in the wonders of a modern society. Your doctors couldn't do anything for my right knee now, could they? I was at the game, Perry, remember? I saw your knee when I visited you at the hospital. Jesus H. Christ couldn't have brought that knee back from the dead. Maybe I'm just a Cro-Magnon, that's all. Perry fought the urge to scratch again. The rash on his right ass cheek demanded attention. We still hitting the bar tonight? I don't think so, Contagion Boy. I prefer the company of at least semi-healthy people. You know, those with rubella or smallpox. Perhaps a bit of the Black Death. I'd rather associate with them than deal with scabies. It's just a rash, asshole. Perry felt anger slowly swell up in his chest. He immediately fought it down. 
Bill Miller seemingly lived to irritate people, and once he got rolling, he didn't quit. It would be scabies this and scabies that for the rest of the week, and it was only Tuesday. But they were just words, and good-natured words at that. Perry calmed himself. He'd already let his temper slip once this week. He'd be damned if he'd insult Bill like that again. Perry moved his mouse and clicked, magnifying a section of the network schematic. Leave me alone, will you? Sandy wants this thing fixed right away. The Pullman people are going apeshit. Bill slid back into his cube. Perry stared at the screen, trying to solve a problem taking place more than a thousand miles away in the state of Washington. Analyzing computer glitches over the phone wasn't an easy job, especially with network difficulties where the problem could be a wire in the ceiling, a bad port, or a single defective component on any of 112 workstations. Many times in customer support, he faced problems that would have chewed up Agatha Christie, Columbo, and Sherlock Holmes in one big swallow. This was one such problem. The answer danced at the edges of his mind, but he couldn't focus. He leaned back into his chair, which set the itch on his spine afire with maddening intensity. It was like a thousand mosquito bites all rolled into one. Perry's train of thought dissolved completely as he ground his back into the office chair, letting the rough cloth dig through his sweatshirt. He grimaced as the welts on his leg flared up with itching so sudden and so bad that he might as well have been stung by a wasp. He attacked the leg welts, clawing his nails through blue jean denim. It was like trying to fight a hydra. Each time he stopped one biting head, two more flared up to take its place. From the next cube, he heard Bill's poor impression of a Shakespearean actor. To scabies or not to scabies, Bill said, his voice only slightly muffled by the divider. That is the infection. Perry gritted his teeth and bit back an angry reply. The welts were driving him nuts, making him easily irritated by little things. Still, although Bill was his friend, sometimes the guy didn't know when to quit. Dr. Daniel Baker sat on hold, waiting to speak with one of the rudest men he'd ever encountered. Just because the guy led a task force for the CDC didn't give him the right to be an asshole to Daniel's staff. Marjorie, his office manager, said she refused to talk to the man again even for one second. But skipping the call wasn't really an option. He had two patients with strange blue fibers growing out of their skin. Three days ago, he'd seen Get Gwyn, who had two of the small fibers growing in his shoulder. Yesterday, he'd examined Missy Hester, who had one on her wrist. Daniel had never seen anything like it, and seeing two in three days sent him to the books. His research turned up a possible diagnosis of Morgellons disease, which very few people actually recognized as a real disease. A CDC task force was trying to figure out what this Morgellons was all about. They had enough cases to merit investigation, although most were dismissed as delusional parasitosis, people imagining that they had bugs under their skin. He'd had Marjorie contact the CDC to see if they could get someone from the task force to come and take a look. Things had gone swimmingly until the CDC realized they had two cases in one location, which bumped the call up to Dr. Frank Cheng. The phone clicked once. So you have them scheduled? Cheng said. No hello, no Dr. Baker, just straight to the point. Yes, Daniel said. They'll both be in your office tomorrow at noon. Does that still work for you, Dr. Cheng? <sighs> I suppose it's fine. I'll have to catch a red-eye out tonight. How far is the Ann Arbor Airport from your office? 
Afraid Ann Arbor doesn't have one of note, Daniel said. You'll have to fly into Detroit. It's about a half an hour drive to Ann Arbor. Wonderful, Chang said. So, Missy Hester and... Good God, how do you pronounce this boy's name? Engine? It's pronounced Gwyn, Daniel said. N-G-U-Y-E-N. It's Vietnamese. I can see how it's spelled. I have it right here in front of me. That might be why I mispronounced it, because I'm reading it. Of course, Daniel said. This guy made him want to toss his Hippocratic Oath and pick up a Glock instead. The girl just had the fiber. No welts like Gwyn, Daniel said. Are the welts significant? Probably not. We haven't seen welts before. Probably something completely different from the fibers. We'll give both of them full examinations, of course, to see if you missed anything. Daniel ground his teeth. Of course. We'll examine then remove the fibers for analysis. You'll have nurses ready to assist, yes? Actually, I'll assist you myself. It's not every day we get someone of, uh, of your caliber in our office. Well, that makes sense. Learn what you can by watching. I'll be in a hurry and won't have time to give you a seminar. I'll be in your office at noon sharp. Have their records waiting for me. Chang hung up. Daniel was going to assist, but it wasn't because he wanted to learn. He'd be damned if he'd let his staff suffer through one second with this douchebag. Daniel had seen Cheng's kind too many times. If this was how the guy acted on the phone with another doctor, he could only imagine how bad he treated nurses. Still, bringing him in was the right thing to do. Daniel would just have to grin and bear it. Missy was a darling little girl, and he'd cared for Gwen since the boy arrived from Vietnam three years ago to study art at U of M. They were both great kids. Daniel would do everything in his power to see they got whatever care they needed, even if it meant eating a little shit from a self-important douche like Frank Chang. Chapter 14. Dirty Fingernails Margaret stared into the microscope's eyepiece, trying to focus on the magnified image. Her eyes were red from lack of sleep. She couldn't rub them, thanks to the plastic faceplate and the cumbersome biosuit. She blinked a few times to clear her vision. How long had she been working on Brubaker? Twenty-four hours and counting, and no end in sight. She bent and stared into the microscope. Hmm, what have we here? The sample's meaning seemed rather obvious, but her fatigue and the horrid condition of the victim's skin made her unsure. Amos, come over here and look at this. He put down his chemical samples and moved towards the microscope. Like Margaret, he hadn't slept in more than a day. Even with the lack of sleep and the awkward rackle suit, however, he moved with a smooth grace that made him look as if he floated rather than walked. He bent into the eyepiece without touching anything. After a moment, he asked, What am I looking for? I was hoping you'd see it right away. I see a lot of things, Margaret. Perhaps you could be a little more specific. Where's the skin sample from? The area just outside the growth. See anything there that would indicate moderate skin trauma? Amos half rose to answer, but Margaret cut him off. And don't give me one of your smart-ass answers, please. I know damn well the whole body is ripped to shreds. Amos bent back to the eyepiece. He stared for a few seconds, silence filling the sterile morgue. Yeah, I see it. I see some scabbing and some damage down past the subcutaneous layer. It looks like a long groove, like a claw wound, perhaps. Margaret nodded. I think I'll take another look at those skin samples we got from under the victim's fingernails. Amos stood straight and looked at her. You don't think he did this to himself, do you? This tears all the way down to the muscle, and it looks like repetitive damage. Do you know how much that would hurt? I can take a guess. 
Margaret stretched her arms high, bent to the left, then to the right. She was sick of the lab and sick of the limited sleep. She wanted a real bed, not a cot, and a real bottle of wine to go with it. As long as she was dreaming, she might as well throw in Agent Clarence Otto and a pair of silk boxers. She sighed. Agent Otto would have to wait for another day. Right now she had other things to worry about, like what could make a man use his fingernails like cloths to tear into his own body. The computer terminal let out a long beep. Information had arrived. Amos shuffled over and sat down. This is odd. Most odd indeed. Just give me the Cliff Notes version. Results on the excise growth for starters. They said their sample had almost completely liquefied by the time they got it. They did what they could, though. The tissue was cancerous. What do they mean it was cancerous? We just saw it. It wasn't a mass of uncontrolled cells. It had structure. Well, I agree, but look at these results. Cancerous tissue. That, plus massive amounts of cellulase and trace amounts of cellulose. Margaret thought on that for a moment. Cellulose was the primary material in plant cells, the most abundant form of biomass on the planet. But the key word there was plants. Animals didn't make cellulose. The cellulose didn't last either. Within hours of reception of material, cellulose decomposed into cellulase. They did everything they could to stop it, including attempts to freeze the material. But it didn't freeze. Just like the enzyme that's decomposing the flesh. It's like a, like a self-destruct mechanism. Suicidal cancer? That's a bit of a reach, Margaret. It was a reach. A big one. And yet, maybe she needed to reach. Reach for something that was beyond accepted science. You have been listening to Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.